So I think it's finally time to talk about me being done with Deep Space Nine. Uh, now that we are going to be talking about a Deep Space Nine episode for the first time in a good, at least like two or three months. So Yeah, it's been a while. But yeah, yeah, I don't know that we've officially announced that on the air, that yes, you've completed your your watch through of, of Deep Space Nine. Yep. And I, I think it's... I think it's probably my favorite Star Trek now, which is that's not something I ever thought I would have said like when I started watching it, but it's really good. It's it's and I, I'm into Voyager now. Like we're we're actually already done with the first season of Voyager because that was a mid season replacement show, so it was or not mid season. It was just a mid season show. It wasn't replacing anything because it was the first UPN show. But uh, so we're already into the second season of Voyager, um, and I'm enjoying that too. But coming back to to it to watch like this episode, I was really just reminded of like. It's so, like, character-focused and so politics-focused in a way that makes makes it harder to... A harder watch, I think, when you've been watching other shows. Like, you know, because we just went into right, right into it from, from D- TNG. And I think, like, it's so, so different. And then, you know, watching Voyager, where it's like, Voyager has, like, its own unique stuff. But then it's like, oh, yeah, like, this is... What most Star Trek is like is that they're on a ship and then the ship goes places and they yeah you stand on the bridge and like talk something comes on the screen and you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. investigate an anomaly yeah but it's like I think like most Star Trek shows the the Star Star Trek shows are always like political political shows and they talk about you know issue based stuff so it's not to say that DS Nine is unique in that way but. I feel like the way that DS9 like talked about some of that stuff, it was very like strident stuff where it feels almost like very current now. Like it seems to me almost mm-hmm. like by talking about like stuff where they could kind of return to it again and look at this and like in the larger framework of like Starfleet and Cardassia and and Bajor and stuff, that it feels a little bit more vital in some ways than sometimes. Like like you know I love like say like the Darmok episode of, of TNG, I think it's like one of the best uh, Star Trek episodes ever. But like the message of that is like, we need to communicate, right? Like we, we need to communicate with other people. Yeah. It's a very like concept type of yeah episode. And I feel like most, even like ones that are like a little bit more issue based, like, like on a specific issue, I feel like they still kind of end up being like, almost a little bit more like universal and not necessarily, you know, being commentary on like a specific thing. Um, Even like you take like half a life where it's like, that's talking about something specific, but it's like, it's still kind of like about overall, like the dignity of, of life, you know, and there is something that's why that's more universal about that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but then like, it's so interesting to watch something like DS9 where it's like, there is an episode, a two-part episode of DS9 that is set in like 2024, and it's basically about how, you know, rich people have like accrued all the wealth, and like there's like not like affordable healthcare, and that there's basically just like giant homeless encampments in like all the major cities, and it's like you watch it and you're like, this is still theoretically a possible thing that could happen. Like it's, you know, not that I think it will happen, but it's like, it's close enough to a real thing that you're like, this does feel like very prescient. And, but then, you know, I've, I've read like an article about that episode in particular where they're like, well, we weren't trying to be prescient. We were, we were talking about like what was going on in LA 
you know, when we were making it. In and, like 1997 or whatever, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, we talked last time we, we did one of these, we talked about Frangi and how, like, the Frangi feel like this very, very, like, specific set of critiques. And there's something, like, very, very, like, energizing and exciting about that. And then I think the other thing about it that I really love is that there are great characters in all, in, in I don't know about all Star Trek shows, but in, you know, all the Star Trek shows that I, that I like, I think there are great characters but the characters exist in service to the plot most of the time, you know, like, and they don't change very much. Like Picard Like if you want to do a thing about humanity, you pick data because. Right. But data is mostly, mostly data for most of the time. Uh, uh, Like, um, you know, Picard and Riker, they're mostly Picard and Riker for, for most of the time. You know, I think I think like uh, an exception to this would maybe be Worf a little bit. I think Worf does grow up somewhat over the course of TNG. But then, like you look at what they have him do in DS Nine, and it's like it's still kind of incomparable. Like the amount they they give him like so much more depth, and like all of the characters on, or most of them anyway, on DS Nine. I think that by the time they get done with the the series, like they have changed in meaningful ways, and like instead of them happening to the events of the show, the show's events happen to them. And so you kind of like, I don't know, like I feel like watching these people go on their personal journeys, I felt so, so invested in that stuff. And I think that's actually a good segue into what we're going to talk about um, today because you, I don't think, liked this episode terribly much. And I, I wouldn't say I disliked it. I think it just, it didn't really hit me anywhere. It just kind of seemed like a... Uh, it was an episode that seemed to me like it was for the purpose of just sort of moving the chess pieces around on the board or like moving the story forward Mm -hmm. in the kind of this overall like dominion war story that they were talking about. Yeah. And and I I get that because I think it does do that stuff, but it, to me, like having, you know, knowing these characters and like knowing where they've been and where, where they are in like the story. It's like, I was watching this and I was just like, ah, this episode is so good because I feel like most of that stuff, not all of it, but most of the, um, the biggest moments in this episode are rooted in a, an important moment for a, for a character. Like you see, seeing like a character's arc come to fruition or like enter a new phase or things like that. And so, I really like that stuff, but, but, you know, it's like, you know, I, I we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. <laughs> Hi everybody. And welcome to out of contracts, the show where two guys who have seen part of Star Trek, try to watch all of it in no particular order. I'm Ryan Howard. And I'm Brady jungle. And today as kind of referenced a little bit in the opening, we are talking about, uh, the episode by Inferno's light which is part two of two, even though the first episode is called something else. Um, and it is uh, season five, episode 15 of Deep Space Nine. And the Memory Alpha uh, synopsis is, the crew tries to defend the Alpha Quadrant from the invading Dominion fleet. Worf, Garrick, and the other prisoners prepare to escape from the Dominion internment camp. And uh, this is written by, this episode is written by Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. And directed by Les Landau. Um, so yeah, this is... I, I was thinking about this. I feel like we've actually watched some... You know, we talk about sometimes how we never watch any important episodes of Enterprise. Like, yep. every episode of Enterprise is just like, I don't know, they went camping or something. Like, like, that's, that's, <laughs> right. like And... 
Malcolm likes pineapples. Yeah. And I feel like even like the last episode we watched Enterprise where it's like theoretically important because it's the first planet that they land on. It it doesn't feel important. It feels very like played off. And I feel almost the opposite about this show where we've kind of watched a fair amount of the important episodes of the show without the context to necessarily understand them fully you know obviously i've seen all the show now but like this i would say this is like probably one of like the top five most important plot episodes yeah it does seem like a lot of things are changing in this episode that yeah have a lot of like impact on the political landscape and the overall story yeah and and i would say like another one of the most important episodes of the show is tears of the prophets which we which we've watched the, the 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 season finale of season six where where Jadzia dies, like that's very important. And then um, even like weirdly, like the Nagus is not like an important episode in and of itself, but it's important in that it, it does introduce the Ferengi political system, which becomes like very integrated into the show as it goes on. And then you know, our very first episode, we did um, third or fourth to last. Yeah, one of the, yeah, that final arc. Which has a ton of stuff. Like, you know, they, all of those episodes do. But I'd say that one is, is actually more rich with incident than some of the other episodes from that time period. So it's like, yeah, yeah it's like we need to watch like the pilot. And, you know, I can think of like the, the episode where Worf joins the show, you know, and I think we're, 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 we're hitting like a lot of like the big, the big hitters from, from Deep Space Nine, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So I guess for this one, we can do what well, I think we've done once or twice before, where I will try to explain from my perspective what it seems like is going on like make sense of what i think is going on and you tell me how wrong i am okay so basically the the setup for this one is that uh bashir and Worf and garrick and martok have been captured by the dominion Mm -hmm. and bashir at least has been replaced by a changeling on deep space nine so there's this thing on Deep Space Nine that looks like Bashir that everyone thinks is Bashir that's kind of carrying out its own plot and like sabotaging things. And uh, Martok, that happened to Martok too. I think they they knew that though by the time that they got to that planet. I think actually this is the first time that real Martok is on the show is the episode before this. Um, Because he's been introduced prior to to this but he wasn't uh... Oh, but then like that was actually a changeling the whole time. Yeah, this is actually one like little criticism I have about this episode is that I've I read I remember reading about this when we watched this episode because obviously like Alexander Siddig is like playing the the changeling Bashir differently than he plays regular Bashir, but I was like I wonder if they if if they knew they were gonna do this and maybe they knew but he didn't know like he, he... I was kind of wondering if this was one of those <laughs> things that was like retconned a little bit or like like how far back was he replaced with the changeling? Well, see, and like, th- did they know it at the time? Cause yeah. Uh, anytime you have like a, like this character has actually been an imposter the whole time. Like there's always that question of like, was it retconned or was it the siege were planet? Like they knew when they were doing it. Yeah. And I, I think it was, I think it was retconned cause he, he, he said that he wished they had told him earlier because he would have, because you know they had written the episode earlier, you know, but he said the last couple episodes before this, he would have played himself a little bit differently if he knew that he was supposed to be a, a changing during that time. It, it's funny because you, you actually can measure roughly. I don't remember exactly what the measurement is, but I did it at the time. You can measure roughly how long he's supposed to have been uh, a changeling because, or at least like it, 
you can measure at least how long he's he's supposed to have been a changeling because he's wearing the old uniform. Um, and they, because this is like right after. Oh, they, interesting. This is like right after they switch the uniforms. The real Bashir is like the the one that's in prison. Yeah, the real Bashir. He was he was captured when, um, when they still had like the Voyager era oh, uniforms. I didn't catch. I didn't catch that. And yeah, na- and then they're all wearing their the new kind of ugly gray ones. Like the gray one. Um, yeah. So it, he's been there for like a while because I think that they switch over not necessarily in the. Maybe it is the first episode of season five, but they they, they switch over. No, because this is episode fifteen, so it's, yeah, it's not. It's I think they they they've been different uniforms for like a few, at least a few weeks at this point. So okay, yeah, but uh, I wish they had kind of allowed Alexander City to kind of because I think that would have. I, I remember like seeing him and not I did not know that he was there, and I was very surprised the first time. And I was like, oh, that's cool. But then I, it would have been even cooler if you could have been like, oh yeah, there were signs, you know. Like- all the clues were there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they give a little like previously on Deep Space Nine thing at the beginning. And then from what people are saying. So it, it sounds like there was basically Cisco had decided to destroy the wormhole so that the Dominion couldn't come through and attack the Alpha Quadrant. And then mm-hmm. I think the implication is this changeling sort of sabotaged that so that it didn't work and it actually like made the wormhole more stable so now it can't be destroyed and then at the end of the episode before this like a whole like fleet a whole bunch of dominion ships come like pouring through the wormhole and when this opens we think that they're about to attack deep space nine but instead they join gold ducat and go to cardassia and we find out that basically gold ducat is kind of made this deal with the Dominion where Cardassia is joining the the Dominion and then kind of will together with them try to like take over the Empire and mm-hmm. and he kind of very much presents it as like this will like like Cardassia, you know, deserves to be like bring Cardassia back to its like glory and like, you know, ruling everyone like we should be and we've spent the last several years sort of like giving up all of these like victories that we had previously won like we gave, gave up Bajor which we used to rule and like this Deep Space Nine used to be one of our stations and like we're going to take back everything that's that's rightfully ours. Yeah you know they've had to like deal with the Maquis you know during this time too uh, yeah, yeah so it's, it's they're not like in their imperial phase anymore of... Right and he fused this kind of joining with the Dominion gives them the like extra strength to be able to kind of get back to where they were and I, I feel like I've as I was thinking about this, I'd never kind of made this association before, and you'll probably be able to speak more accurately to this, but it kind of seems like Cardassians are the most, like, nationalistic species in Star Trek. Or that's, uh, I like, mean, Klingons are, too. <laughs> well, on- honestly, uh, I feel like Klingons and Cardassians and Romulans all, like, when they want them to be, you know, are... So, yeah, and th- that was uh, what I was trying to think. Because I feel like the, you hear, like, even in the other episodes, like, the Cardassians talk about Cardassia in a very, like, you know, like, for the glory of Cardassia, we're doing this for Cardassia. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, I think the Klingons are, I guess you have, like, Klingons do stuff, like, for the Empire. But I don't know that any Klingon would try to make an argument that, like, Kronos is the best planet in the, the galaxy. I think for Klingons, it's more of, like, they're fighting for more, like, their way of life. 
um, instead of like any inherent like. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Cardassia like, itself, you know, no one's doing like four Kronos or I don't. I guess I don't. I'm trying to think if Rom maybe Romulans. I guess are a little bit, but Romulans are a little more like shady too. Klingons are almost a little bit more like individualistic, where it's like they, they, you know, they want to do things for the Empire, but like ultimately they're like it's all about like how you comport yourself personally, you know? Yeah. And and and, and like. There are a lot of, I think, issues you could take with with Klingon culture, but, like, they are focused on – they're more focused than, like, any other uh, race on what their idea of morality is, which is not something that I think you can say about uh, the Cardassians. Yeah, I feel like Cardassians are very much more, like, Cardassian supremacists. Yeah, and, and the Romulans – it's tough. The Romulans, I think, are very convinced of their own superiority, but also like, as far as it comes to like their interactions as like a as like a, a nation or, or uh, as a as a planet, it seems like less focused on that and more focused on just like trust issues. Like like they just have like they're just heavily suspicious, you know. Yeah. Kim and I just watched an episode of of a Voyager where they find a tiny wormhole, and so they can't get the ship through there, but they get a little transmitter into the wormhole and then they talk to a to a Romulan who's in the Alpha Quadrant on the other side and uh, he is just like does not want to tell him his name and he doesn't he believes that they must be spies you know who were sent there by Starfleet and and you know it takes such a long time to get them to even like listen to him and it seems like he's just kind of more suspicious than anything else yeah Um, and I think that's the thing with Romulans is like because they themselves are so like duplicitous and have all these like layers of intrigue and you know shadiness that they are inherently suspicious of everyone else because they would be doing something like spying or that so they mm-hmm. assume everyone else is too yeah yeah it's um i don't know i think all, all of these things like when they're well used i think that they, they can be good like pieces of like a critique on on various things and but yeah i think yeah. you know i think this is something else too like you you told me you noted in a text that like one of the things that uh ducat says in the episode is make cardassia strong again which obviously has uh right. you know there's some there's some thoughts you can have about that now and i think that's kind of goes back to what i was saying where it's like they do make this stuff like much more specific in in the show where it's about imperialism and it's about like i think even back then like kind of the conservative line of things used to be better when we weren't so pc or whatever like i think that was still a thing in the 90s that was being said and so i i think like by allowing themselves to talk about this stuff and i think what is a more specific manner they have kind of made the episodes a lot of the episodes like more prescient than they otherwise might have been because unfortunately we're still facing a lot of the same issues but right now that we were then um but uh yeah yeah but yeah we've we've gone fairly far afield from this episode so no, far that's right, that's right. Um, <laughs> it's good though so yeah so that's all going on right now kind of on deep space and around deep space nine and the alpha quadrant is they're dealing with this sort of the political repercussions of now cardassia has joined the dominion Golducat is actually the new leader of the cardassian government under this kind of treaty and talks with Cisco a few times and, and basically announces that like one of the first things he's going to do is reconquer deep space nine and they, that he's coming with like this large dominion fleet to attack deep space nine. 
and so Cisco and the Klingons, and it turns out also the Romulans are are all kind of like gathering their forces at Deep Space Nine, preparing to make this kind of big defense against the Dominion. Well, and the one of the, one of the big plot points here is actually that the Klingons and the Federation have been in have they they ended the Kittimer Accords at the beginning of the fourth season, and so. Uh, basically like the Klingons kind of declared war on the Federation. And so this, the, the Klingons now being here is a big deal because they decide to ally again, you know, for, because they have a common, they have a common enemy. They have a common interest in defeating the, the dominion. So like that scene, there's a, there's like a scene or two with, with Gowron in, in here, who is now the chancellor of, of the Klingon empire. And those are important because in previous in some previous episodes, they were uh, they were at war with each other, and you know, Gowron disc- gave war for another discommendation again after revoking it at one point. And I do enjoy the number of times Worf has been like <laughs> either honored or dishonored by the Klingons. Yeah, it's it's funny because it's like I think it's so interesting to like learn how the sausage gets made with like TV shows, and how sometimes like execs will make writers do something, and then writers will be like, well. I'll still figure out a way to do what I want. And, and so, like, this is something where, you know, the first few seasons of, of DS9 were not super, didn't get super great ratings. And the show, I think, was always considered to be, like, a little bit of a ratings disappointment, you know, compared to TNG anyway. And so, you know, the Dominion is, or, like, the lead-up to that are kind of the big thing over the first few seasons. And then the executives are like, hey, like, can we make this less complicated, sort of? And, and they're like, what, what if we, what if we had them fight the Klingons... Because that's what they used to do on old Star Trek, and like people know what that is, and so then they're like, "All right, well, we'll write Worf onto the show, uh, and in that same episode, we'll have the the Klingons be the bad guys again." And then now, like you know, a season and a half, they're like, "All right, well, let's that's done, and now we'll yeah, and now we'll now, go back to what we to... wanted to write about, which is the Dominion War, you know, yeah, the complex politics between the Cardassians and Bajorans and Dominion, yeah." But now we've also included the Klingons. Yes. Yeah. And so, so meanwhile, while all this is going on, there's this prison camp where uh, Bashir and Worf and Garrick and Martok are. And this, I, I assume, has been kind of like explained before. But basically, they've found a... There's a wall plate that they can remove. And Garrick will go behind there and, and is trying to do some engineering thing to be able to, I guess they have like a shuttlecraft nearby. And so he's trying to like hack into it to be able to transport them off of this prison camp and onto their shuttlecraft. Right. Because they were captured, but they went to the asteroid on purpose because Garrick's uh, old boss slash dad, who will never, would never admit that Garrick was his son. And Ember and Tain, um, who is, I think, is in like one other episode of, of the show, he had sent them a signal that he had been captured. And so they went there to see if they could find him, and then they got they got captured themselves. And so that's why their runabout is still above like the surface of the asteroid. It's because they they came there in the runabout and they got captured. They couldn't they couldn't leave after they got there. Uh, and then meanwhile so so Garrick is going back in and and doing these things, but it's taking time and also I think this this has actually come up in a another episode we did, but like Garrick has 
very bad claustrophobia. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is like a very like difficult thing for him every time he goes back in this like cramped little space and is trying to do this thing. And he has at least one kind of like breakdown um, when the lights go out and he's trapped back there um, and Bashir has to come and drag him out. And then meanwhile, Worf is having these fights with um, Jem'Hadar soldiers that they're, they say like they're doing it as part of kind of their training that they make their soldiers fight him so that they can study him and learn how Klingons fight so that they can beat Klingons. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, so is the reason he's doing this to like keep the Jem'Hadar occupied so that Garrett can keep working on his thing or, or is this just something he's being like forced to do and is happening in the meantime? I think it's like kind of a ABC thing where it's like, he's doing it for that reason and he's doing it because he's doing it to, to distract. And he's also doing it because he's being made to, but he's also doing it because it would not be honorable for him to, to like turn down a, a you know, turn away from a fight in this way. Um, mm-hmm. And it, and, and like, so I like I like this episode a lot, and I like I like most of the stuff that happens in it, but like to me like this this is this stuff is the actual like this is the thing like this is the meat of like why I like this episode is this wharf stuff I really really like it um, I I do I mean I I do really like I generally like wharf in in most things especially like the few times I have gotten to see him on Deep Space Nine mm-hmm. I really like like this wharf and like the stuff he does. Like, I, I feel like he really, I don't know, Deep Space Nine seems to have done, like, some really cool stuff with Worf. That yeah. Well, even, like, you know, when we watched that, the very first episode that we watched, um, where he kills Garon, and we're like, oh, this is kind of, we you know, we were kind of, didn't really know what to make of it. And it's like, yeah. I think, you know, watching that in context, there's a way in which I wish it had been, a, where I think they could have done even a little better job, because... Gowron kind of disappears from the show for like a year or two almost. And then he kind of shows up like one in like one or two episodes prior to that episode we watched and he's kind of doing all this stuff and then Worf kills him. But I wish they had done a little bit better job of kind of reminding us like what a terrible person Gowron has been to Worf for at this point, almost 10 years, you know, almost like 10 seasons of TV. Like he's, he's existed. Uh, But like, it's like triumphant to kind of to like see him do that, like to be like, finally, like this this person who has like caused so much misery in my life. Not and he's not doing it out of revenge. He's doing it because it's like the right thing to do. But it's like he is kind of like slayed this like personal demon, you know. In mm-hmm. addition to like doing this thing that is like a very important thing to do. And I, yeah, I think like that's such a good character moment for them. And then I think this might even be better, where it just like it just shows like. A, that he's, like, very strong and, like, powerful, like, which is something that I think people joke around a lot about in uh, TNG is that, like, <laughs> the problem with him being the security officer is that, like, the way to show that someone, something is threatening is to have it beat Worf, and so Worf ends up getting beat a lot of the time. And so, like, but it's, so it's, like, good to see him, like, kind of really be able to kind of kick butt in this. But then also just, like, it's more about his, you know, how he refuses to give up. Like, it's just, like, this... Yeah. Because the way this like this plays out is that, you know, they start with like the most junior soldiers and kind of send them at him, and he's you know he's having like five or six fights a day for, they say like six days in a row or something like that, and he just beats them all up, and then the kind of at the at the climax of it at the end, you know the sort of the leader of all of these Jem Hadar 
now that Worf has been, he's been winning all of these battles, but they show kind of the toll that just fighting that much has taken on his body. That he's he's breaking lots of bones. He's and, having like broken ribs and injuries and, yeah, and turtle bleeding, you know is yeah. like bruised and exhausted. Um, and so you know after days of this, then he faces the sort of the leader of all of these Jem'Hadar. And so in kind of this, like at the end, like sort of while Garrick is like the closest he can get to to getting them out, but also the Dominion have kind of figured out what they're doing. And so they're interrogating Bashir and like trying to, you know, kind of everything's about to come to a head. And Worf is in this fight with the leader of the, the Jem'Hadar who keeps beating him down. And, you know, basically the, the way it works is if you if you get knocked down, if you just stay on the ground, then the fight's over and you lose. And kind of everyone's telling Worf, you know, just stay down, let it be over. And he just kind of keeps getting up and then and gets knocked down again. And eventually, you know, kind of the great line from it is the the Jem'Hadar leader. You know, there there's a... A, a, a Vorta. Vor, Vorta. Yeah. Um, who I didn't understand dominion so, politics well enough but well i can i can say that very quickly which is that the founders are the leaders of the dominion those are the shape changers and they they breed the vorta and the jemhadar and the jemhadar and the vorta are like bred to believe that the founders are gods and so they kind of kind of do whatever they are told and so the the founders are in charge and then the Vorta are basically like the middle management, like they they do like the day to day running of stuff at the direction of the founders, and then the Jem'Hadar are the foot soldiers who are just bred to to fight only. Yeah, and so the this Vorta is telling the Jem'Hadar leader to just finish it, and he he never really says it, but he essentially is telling him just like just f- like finish him off. Why can't you like clearly you keep beating him up? Why can't you just win this fight? Mm-hmm. And Worf keeps getting back up and. Eventually, what the Dominion or the Jem'Hadar leader says is, I can't, like, it's impossible to defeat him. All I could do is kill him. Yeah, like, when, when I, the first time I heard that, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a writer and I, part of my job, I have to write fiction and stuff. And this is not something that I would say really very often, like, ever. Not because I think I'm a great writer, but just because, like, this is not the way I feel about other people's writing usually. But then the thing, when he says that thing of, I yield. I cannot defeat this Klingon. All I can do is kill him. Yeah, that's uh, right. He uh, actually, like, like, yields. Like, he yeah. seeds, like, Worf has won the fight. Yeah, and, and, like, I, like, got jealous. I was like, that... It's such an amazing line of dialogue. Just, like, it just encapsulates, like, those two characters, like, those those two, like, races of, of alien. And it just, like... It's, like, this, like, ultimate sign of, like... It's, like, the ultimate moral victory, you know? Yeah. And we, because we've talked before about kind of the sort of questionable that like things get sort of like written off as like, like is Klingon culture like a good or bad thing because it's so based on yeah. like violence and that. But I feel like that that is very much like Klingon at their best. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. Like just that whole arc of just like, and it's getting harder and harder. And, and he, you know, Bashir is patching up his wounds and telling him that he has to stop. And he's like, I'm not going to stop. And, you know, and then, you know, you Martok over there who Martok, you know, you find out just like he loves like the idea of like things being turned into songs or just like legendary like exploits and story. You know, he he wants to be like in in stories that people tell about him after he dies and stuff. And so he's he's kind of on the other side of being like, 
you know. But then at the end, even he's like, "You, you've done enough, Worf. Like your, your honor is satisfied," and and he still won't do it. You know, it's just it's so good. <laughs> um, yeah, and then he's about to get killed by. Yeah, because the Vorta just tells like when the after the the leader, um, like yields to Worf, the Vorta just tells another soldier standing there to just shoot them both and kill them. Um, and then right as they're firing, you know, Garrick is successful and all of the, the good guys get, get beamed off the, off of this prison onto the, their shuttlecraft. Mm. Unfortunately, the Jem'Hadar does die, which I do feel bad about. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, that kind of, that kind of sucks. Like, uh, he was, he was like doing a good thing too. And then he, he is the one who gets, he just gets shot. He yeah. gets killed. I think that's, that's something else I like about this episode too. It's just though, is that. And again, this is something I think it does this show, I think, more than any other Star Trek show, I think, other than maybe the new ones, like benefits from watching it in the way that it was intended to be watched, uh, is that like, this is not the first time that something like this happens with the Jem'Hadar either, where the Jem'Hadar, like, they're merciless soldiers... They, they almost kind of remind me a little bit of, like, the clones in the Clone Wars TV show, uh, the Star Wars Clone Wars TV show, where it's like... Mm, mm-hmm. Like, they were designed just for fighting. Yeah, they're literally made just for fighting, but, like, they have a code, you know? Like, they have a code mm-hmm. that, that kind of dictates, like, their behavior and what they find to be valuable. And so, even though they, they respect the, the founders, it's like there are things that they will do and won't do and things that they believe to be important and so you do occasionally there will be an episode that's like about like the honorable Jem Hadar, where it's like one of the best episodes I think of all of DS9 is like about this Jem Hadar who who naturally produces the drug that the Dominion uses to keep the Jem Hadar addicted so that they will keep on fighting for them, you know. And, and so he's trying to get to figure out if they can if other Jem Hadar can can naturally produce this so that they can be free, you know, or like there's, there's other ones where it's like a Jem'Hadar who knows that the Dominion is making him go into like a, a trap and that they don't really care about him and, and that Cisco does actually care about him and doesn't want to like have to kill them. But, and, and there's just like all this stuff where it's like, sometimes like they, even though they know that they have to work for the Dominion, like there's like this understanding that they have with, uh, with people in the Federation of like, a mutual like respect, like which is mm-hmm. not true really with the other two races that are in the in the Dominion, and I really like that a lot too. Like it's just it's it's I always like seeing one of those one of those things where this Jem Hadar is like, oh like I gotta give it up. I gotta give it up for 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 war for whoever for this you know? clan here yeah yeah, and so like that's that's another like I think a really good thing about this episode is you get to see like that aspect of their of their culture because that is something that like does pop up like periodically throughout the show. Um, so I think we've kind of covered the asteroid part, right? Cause they get away. Yeah. And then the kind of the end, like the climax is, is as soon as they escape, Bashir starts trying to like contact deep space nine and he sends this message. And so th- what's happening meanwhile is that the, the, you know, the whole Federation and Klingon fleet has assembled at deep space nine is they think you know, all their sensors are telling them that this like huge Dominion fleet is coming to attack them. So they're all like out in their ships, like ready to defend the station, but they don't see any, they, they like don't have any visual. They don't see any Dominion ships. And they're, so they're trying to figure out what's happening. Like 
are, do they have cloaks all of a sudden or like what's going on? And then they get this message from Bashir. And I feel like this is a very, this episode in general, I think portrays a like kind of like badass leader side of Cisco that I feel like we haven't gotten to see much of before. Yeah, I think he really grows into that too over the yeah over the both of the show. both in like whenever he's having these like kind of video calls with with Gold Ducat and just is is clearly very angry and but also like very much like just not afraid and basically telling him like you know bring it mm-hmm. um, you want Deep Space Nine back you come and get it type of um, reaction yeah and then and then in this one like he just immediately. Like, as soon as this call comes in from Bashir, before he doesn't even, like, try to, like, talk to him or anything. He just immediately... Because they, I think they they know that there is a changeling somewhere on the station, but they don't know who it is. Yeah, I thought that was, I was, thought that was actually kind of an interesting way to do it, where the changeling Bashir is the first person to suggest that there's a changeling on the ship, presumably because he wants to uh, divert suspicion away from himself, you know? Yeah. And so, so as soon as Cisco hears that Bashir is like out in the wormhole, he just immediately like asks the station computer, you know, like locate Bashir, and they're like, Bashir's not on the station. He just got on this shuttlecraft, and then just immediately tells uh, Kira to like destroy that shuttlecraft, because what we discover the plan was is that uh, that changeling had loaded a a bomb onto that shuttlecraft and was going to fly it into the like the closest star that would make it go supernova and just destroy Bajor, destroy Deep Space Nine, and destroy the whole this whole fleet that was assembled there. So that you know the Dominion were trying to like would make the uh, the good guys think that they were attacking, so that this whole fleet would be here, and then they would just blow up the sun and destroy that fleet and never have to even have a battle with them. Yeah, it it made me. Um... I watched this episode this morning, and so I think maybe if I had more time, I might have tried to get a hold of the "That's not how science works, ladies," and asked them how big of a bomb would you need to, to, to make like, a Stargo supernova? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would assume, like, since a star is already just a giant bomb, essentially, right? Like, it's just a huge like fusion reaction. That it, that would be a good question for them. But they get they get they they get them just in time. I felt bad for those. Uh, you see that Changing Bashir has killed several legitimate occupants of the shuttlecraft. That's another like good. That's a good like creepy moment though when he radios in as a different person. It's like he still looks like Bashir, but he's 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 using like a woman's voice. Yeah, and there's just kind of like these like two dead like red shirt bodies in the corner. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very like Terminator Two type type moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so they get him, and then that's basically. It, yeah, there's like there's like one more there's like one more call. I guess that's like, like after that that's when they they do the make Cardassia great again speech basically is when Gudukat does that. Yeah, and there's another like standoff between him and Cisco where they threaten each other a little bit, and you get to see sort of all the all the captives get kind of reunited with, you know, Worf and Jadzia and Garrick and the this Cardassian that he's in love with. That's also Gold Ducat's daughter, is that right? Yeah, that's the. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So that is, uh, her name is, um, I forget her name, but she uh, is Gold Ducat's uh, illegitimate daughter that he had with a Bajoran, because hmm. he would 
uh, I mean, basically, he would rape Bajoran women when he was back when he was. Uh, he would say that they, it was consensual, but he would he would have women who were you know he would pick them out of like the the attractive people who were working as slave labor on the ship, and then he would kind of they would be kept women for him. So this is his illegitimate daughter with a Bajoran, which is why her features are not as um, distinctly Cardassian. Like okay. and she's got like she's got like the Bajoran nose a little bit. Um, yeah, and that's that's a little thing that Kim and I don't love is that like her age is pretty nebulous. Where the first time she's on the show, it kind of seems like she's like a kid, but then like nothing ever like happens between her and Garrick, if if my if memory serves. But like it does seem like at the very least she's certainly interested in him romantically and it's like he's like a lot older than her like like he's he is like literally her dad's age mm. um and so it's like there's, there's a weird thing too in like the second season i think where where jake who is still a teenager who is still like a like 16 or 17 is dating an adult adult bajoran woman <laughs> and you're huh. like oh, that's that's odd <laughs> um but uh yeah but no that's that is his his daughter um, I wanted to say two other quick things that that just like I wrote down as notes. One of which is that there is a Breen, which I believe is the first time we see Breen um, in Star Trek. Maybe unless there are some in TNG, I don't remember. There's a Breen sitting in the prison cell with everybody else, like on the asteroid, and the and the, the Breen doesn't really do anything up until the very end when it tries to disarm some of the uh, the Dominion troops that are in its cell. But the the Breen just straight up looks like Princess Leia's costume <laughs> from uh, she's dressed up like a bounty hunter in it re- of the Jedi. They really do. Yeah, and it does, and it does later too. Um, it like you, the Breen. Do all Breen have the same like helmet or? Basically, yeah. It's not quite, but I don't know. There's a little bit of a difference. It seems like, and so for whatever reason, it strikes me even more watching this episode than it does. Maybe just because, like in the other episodes with the Breen, there are always like multiple Breen, so it's maybe it's like less weird. But it was just like that. Just is straight up. It, it, like they could. Yeah, it, it looks. They could have really taken the helmet like and it. painted it a different color. It would be the same, but. Um, uh, that's that's one thing. And the other thing is that I wanted to know if you have ever noticed this because I think this happens much. More, it happens in all Star Trek shows, I think, from this time period. But it happens much more in Deep Space Nine than any other Star Trek show, just because of the way that the view screens on the show work. Where usually, if you're like on, uh, say, um, the Enterprise or, or Voyager, when when someone comes up on like the main view screen, they're looking right at into the camera, which is like what you would assume they would be doing, you know, because I I think we all, we all accept that like Star Trek takes place in this, in a future where the screen you're looking at also has a camera in it somehow. Like, and so uh, that's where they're looking. But then in sometimes when they do this on, on some of the other shows, but especially because of the way the view screens work, they're not usually looking through like these big view screens. Um, And what it is, is that, when they shoot a scene where, like, say, Cisco is talking to Ducat on his little laptop thing that he's got in his office, they'll shoot it so that um, the person who's on the screen, it, it's like it's like they're there, and so they're not looking at the screen; they're looking like in the direction of the person in the shot. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? So it's like, like, so it's like if you took a picture of me 
in front of like a Skype window and like I was sitting I was like standing to like the right of the Skype window and so then I was Oh looking, yeah, so you're looking they're looking like straight ahead even though when you look at Cisco like his computer's kind of like down and to the right. Well, no no, it's it's not even that. It's it's that like uh, so uh, yeah, the screen is down to the right, and so instead of Ducat looking straight ahead, which is what he should be doing because that's where Cisco would look from his perspective, he's looking up and to the left. Okay. Um, and and like they do that as soon as you see that for the first time, you'll never be able to unsee it. Like he like <laughs> they do that all the time, uh, especially on Deep Space Nine, where because like a lot of times they're just talking on their their view screens like in one of their personal quarters or in their office or something like that. They're always looking like the the person on the screen is always like it's as if they're in the room and you're you're shooting two characters talking to each other rather than shooting someone talking to another person over a screen. And it's like it's so funny because it's especially in because when they do like a close up shot of just the screen, because you know they don't I don't think probably because they know what which shots they're going to use in the final cut. So there'll be a shot of Ducat in this episode, and uh, Cisco is not even in the shot, but but Ducat is still looking up and to the left instead of at, oh, to, yeah. at the screen. So it looks like he's like rolling his eyes almost at, at Cisco um, in those in those shots. But um, yeah, yeah. And it, again, a, a little thing, but it, again, once you see it, it's like you can't not see it. But um, I wanted to like just speak a little bit more on like what I was saying about the payoff stuff because I think all of this stuff is kind of rooted in character work, a lot of it anyway, where you know, we talked about like the wharf stuff. That stuff is clearly like that's just character based. That's not really even have to do with like plot stuff. But then like, I think that the Garrick stuff is, it's kind of like his version of like getting closure and also in a way, like kind of really leaving behind his old life even more because like that, his last link to like his old life when he was in the uh, Obsidian Order, um, which is like the, the Cardassia CIA basically is being severed by and Abraham Tain, who's also his dad, dying. And so, like, he's doing this, like, in a very, like, it's already, like, it's something that he's very afraid of, but then also he's, like, experiencing a lot of, like, traumatic stuff, like, beyond that, like, at this at this time. And so it's, like, this is happening, but, like, it is, like, a very emotional thing, I think, for that character at this moment. And, and so, mm. like, I like that stuff. And then... You know, even though he's not in this episode very much, I think this is this is like a huge, huge episode for for Ducat, who I think is probably my favorite like bad guy in Star Trek. Because, you know, throughout the entire show, like before this, you know, for so for like the majority of the show, they kind of like are playing this like will he or won't he thing, both with him and with Garrick of like you know, what is Gull Dukat's deal? Like, is he going to ultimately uh, break bad and, like, kind of become, like, the terrible person he was before the show started, where he when he used to oversee the op- occupation of, of Bajor? Or is he going to kind of, like, come around and, like, be, you know, like, ultimately embrace the good and stuff? Because, like, there are things Yeah, because there are does. some where, like, he just, like, has some adventures with the crew or... Yeah, there are, yeah. And, and just kind of, are... like, arc-worky friend. Or and even like there and it's like there's there's an episode that we'll do eventually where with the first time with his daughter where he actually he and Kira I don't remember why Kira goes with him but he and Kira go to this place where 
where like his daughter is and she doesn't know that his daughter is there but he actually is there to kill his daughter because he doesn't want people to know that she exists because he knows that that will like be a, a very bad thing for him to have a, a part Bajoran daughter in the political system of Cardassia but then also like not only that but he also knows like even if he did bring her back to Cardassia that she would be totally rejected and, and he and he knows that it would be the same thing for her in Bajor too that like she would be looked down on by Bajorans and so he also just kind of doesn't really feel like there's a place for her in the universe and so in his weird like twisted mind like he almost feels like he's doing her a favor but he doesn't but he also feels bad like he doesn't want to do it but he's going to but then then Kira convinces him not to and so like there's there's like all this stuff where it's kind of like he is kind of a bad guy but then like every now and then he'll do something but then I think this this turn where like he's like all right I'm going to join the Dominion and like this is kind of like when he becomes like full-on bad and I think it's such like a savvy move from the writers because it is them being like, well, no, like he's a war criminal and like, we're not going to redeem a war criminal, you know, like he, Mm -hmm. he's a bad guy. And so like, maybe you, maybe you should feel silly for thinking or wanting him to, to be this way. Not that they should feel silly, but like, because like, you know, obviously they were writing those episodes, but it's like, it is like kind of like this thing of ultimately no like he's not going to be redeemed like he's like that's a that's a big choice for the writers and for the show and for that character and then you know he even like he's going to he tries to he wants to kill all these people and he wants to kill his own daughter like they say like his daughter's on the on the ship and so like that is kind of him like rejecting this thing it's it's kind of him returning to like ultimately he could decide between his daughter and like his power and he decides to go with uh the power but then also like I think the the thing that's so good about about Ducat is that he even like when he when they're still flirting with making him like not a terrible guy like he never really will admit that what he did was wrong like he always like claims that he's like doing something like in his own mind he's he's yeah. in the right but not even that he he in his own mind he's in the right like that that's true but it's also just like he like is like functionally incapable of like taking the responsibility for his past and present actions. And so he's like, you know, so like when he's talking to Cisco, he's like, well, look, this is what, this is what made sense. It made sense to do this. And like, look, I'm, I'm giving you a chance. You should just surrender. Like, you know, you're, you're, otherwise you're bringing it on yourself. You know, it's like, it's nothing that he's doing. He's not, he's just kind mm-hmm. of like following like the inevitable flow of, of history, you know? And, and anytime everyone ever confronts him about like the occupation, you know, he's, he's talking about how, uh, you know, like I didn't choose to occupy Cardassia. Like I was, you know, I made things better for the workers and, and, you know, I was just doing my job and, or he'll say like, you know, we've already, this is, that's ancient history. We've already moved past that. Like, well, I don't need to keep on, what am I just going to apologize for that for the rest of my life? You know, like he always, like, he's such a fascinating character. Cause it's just like the amount of like hoops he'll jump through to it's again, it's, it is like you know, I, I really hesitate to call things Trumpian because I think it's so overused. But again, I think it is like kind of this weird pressureness that the show has where like that is a that is a Trump thing where it's like he is so incapable of ever like admitting that he made a mistake. You know, he just like that's always something that gets, needs to get moved on from or like really here's how it wasn't really a mistake or here's how he really didn't do anything wrong or here's how like someone how someone else did something else wrong is yeah. worse. It's just so good. And so, like, even though he's not in this episode very much, it's like seeing him do this 
ultimate heel turn, it is a really big moment for that character. And it really is like, it's a crystallization of like, no, this is who this guy is. And, and then and, and you compare it with, with Garrick, who like ultimately is like, all right, well, I am... I, I've I, I've I miss my homeland, but also like ultimately like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do work for these people. Yeah, like, like I'm going to, to work right for yeah. like it, you know they kind of end up becoming like two sides of a coin of like this is this is like the two ways that people like this can go, and hmm. so I think that stuff does work really well, um, you know, for me personally. But again, it's like n- I'm not criticizing the way our show is formatted or anything. Like I think it's fun the way we do this, but it it yeah, stuff like this kind seems the most like just not well served by <laughs> yeah it's you know not not everyone likes d69 you know um but yeah i i think for me like when it when it works it really does work and so i i just so, had so much joy watching this episode and i just really liked it a lot <laughs> uh well thank you everybody for listening uh this was a fun one i uh, hope i hope brady i didn't talk too much um but uh I, I was passionate about this one yeah no it's a lot i, I like i said i i I think I said before we started recording, but this is one where I was looking forward to our discussion of it more than I think the episode itself, which is sure part of why we do this. So. Yeah, it was a good it was a good good talk for sure. Um, well, I think we're going to be in Deep Space Nine land again, uh, you know, for for at least for probably a couple of more episodes. But you know, next in in two weeks, two Sundays from now, when we come out, uh, we're going to be doing uh, Deep Space Nine season four, episode fourteen, which is called Return to Grace. Which I believe is a a, a Kira Dukat episode. Um, so we'll get to just, maybe we'll talk more about Dukat then. But nice. um, you know, in the meantime, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at Contracts. You can follow us and listen to our episodes on YouTube at Out of Contracts, all one word. You can visit our website at uh, outofcontracts.podbean.com, or you can email us at outofcontracts at gmail.com. Uh, you can also listen to the uh, our sister shows on the Kaleidoscope Media Network. Uh, there is Here's Johnny, which is a horror media podcast. That's Not How Science Works, which is a science pop culture podcast. And Wizard Studies, which is a Harry Potter podcast. Uh, so check all those out if you are interested in any of those things. Those are good shows. And yeah, we'll see you in a couple weeks with Return to Grace. Talk to you later. Bye, everybody. <laughs>